and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 14th through Sunday, the 17th, feature guest conductor Nikolai Zepsneider and cellist John Sharp. The program includes the first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances of La Nuit de la Mort, music by Augusta Holmes, Cello Concerto No. 1 by Camille Saint-Saëns, and Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 2. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Saint-Saëns' first cello concerto, a work lasting about 19 minutes. Saint-Saëns made his professional debut at the age of 10, playing piano concertos by Mozart and Beethoven in the Salle Pleyel in Paris. He was one of music's astounding prodigies, an early bloomer, a quick study, and the stuff of legends. At his Salle Pleyel debut, he offered to play from memory as an encore any Beethoven sonata the audience requested. He composed his first piece when he was only three years old, and at four, he played the piano part on one of Beethoven's violin sonatas at a private concert. By 13, he had been admitted to the Paris Conservatory, where he was an award-winning star pupil. Hector Berlioz said of him, he knows everything, but lacks inexperience. Unlike the young Mozart, Saint-Saëns was not exploited as a child. His widowed mother saw that he was given a serious, well-rounded education. He studied Latin and read the classics. He studied mathematics and science, and he developed lifelong fascinations with astronomy and archaeology. His published writings include essays and books on botany, Roman drama, and the history of the postage stamp. Sasson's musical interests were also wide-ranging, and at a time when old music was not yet fashionable, he was a great advocate of such composers as Bach, Handel, and Gluck. He helped convert Berlioz to the Bach cause. He was also a great defender of contemporary music, particularly that by Wagner, who lacked French champions, and of Liszt. In 1860, he astonished Wagner by playing huge chunks of Tristan and Isolde from memory at the piano. Eventually, his sympathy for modern music waned. He was among the outraged audience members at the premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring in 1913. Although he outlived both Mahler and Debussy, he had no use for either composer's music. Saint-Saëns was a natural composer of concertos because he himself was something of a showman and an exceptionally gifted performer. Berlioz called him an absolutely shattering master pianist. When he began his cello concerto in 1872, he already had composed three concertos for piano and two for violin, all relatively light virtuoso vehicles of indisputable charm. This cello concerto is a work of considerable depth and seriousness. Its experimentation with traditional form owes much to the innovations of Liszt, particularly the linking of its three movements as one and the recycling and transformation of the opening materials throughout the work. Fifteen years later, Saint-Saëns would dedicate his organ symphony to Liszt. The middle movement plays the role of both slow movement and scherzo, another Listian idea, although nothing is as impressive as the passages that bind it at either end to the dramatic opening movement and the brilliant finale. 
The soloist dominates the concerto from the first measure. Saint-Saëns takes great care to ensure that the cello line, in phrase after phrase of both virtuosic display and lyrical beauty, is never overwhelmed by the orchestra, a serious liability in writing for the combination of orchestra with such a low-lying solo instrument. After finishing the concerto, Saint-Saëns is said to have refused ever to write another one for cello because he found it so difficult to showcase it properly. But he loved the sound of the cello, think of the great noble Swan in his Carnival of the Animals, and 30 years later he succumbed and wrote a second cello concerto. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Saint-Saëns' Cello Concerto No. 1. And now on to Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 2, a work lasting about 34 minutes. In August 1844, Robert Schumann suffered a severe breakdown. Medical reports seldom shed much light on works of art, but in Schumann's case, his creative process was regularly dictated by his physical condition. His fragile life was marked by recurring melancholy and depression beginning as early as 1828. There were recurrences in October 1830 and throughout 1831 and in the autumn of 1833 when he attempted suicide by leaping from his fourth-floor apartment window. His diary that year records his fear of going mad. There were other breakdowns in 37, 38, and 39, but with the happiness of marriage to Clara Wieck in 1840 and the abundant, joyous outpouring of songs that year, it seemed that he had put his demons behind him and that better times lay ahead. But in 1842, Schumann collapsed from exhaustion and overwork. The worst time of all came in 1844. He couldn't even listen to music, which cut into my nerves as if with knives, he wrote, and he complained of a constant debilitating ringing in his ears. He also suffered from trembling and from unreasonable fears of sharp metal objects and heights, doubtless the consequence of renting that fourth-floor apartment. When Robert and Clara went to Dresden that October, his nights were sleepless and sheer torture. Clara would awaken to find him swimming in tears. He wrote no music for a year. It took him weeks just to draft a letter. Eventually, he began to study Bach systematically and to try his own hand at some compositional exercises. This C major symphony is the first large-scale piece Schumann wrote after his breakdown. For a composer who cut his teeth on piano pieces and songs, moved naturally into chamber music, and had only recently tackled writing for orchestra, this was a bold effort, perhaps even a test of the strength of his recuperation. Although we know it as Schumann's second symphony, it follows an abandoned effort from 1832, attempted long before his confidence and talent worked in tandem, and several works dating from 1841, the Spring Symphony, published as his first, the D Minor Symphony, later revised and published as number four, and the beginnings of another symphony in C minor. Schumann took to the new medium with great enthusiasm, if not comparable experience. The Spring Symphony, for example, was sketched in four days and finished in less than a month. The C major symphony didn't go as quickly or easily, partly because Schumann was feeling his way back toward a full workload. Three years after finishing the music, he wrote to D.G. Alten, the music director in Hamburg, 
I wrote my symphony in December 1845, and I sometimes fear my semi-invalid state can be divined from the music. I began to feel more myself when I wrote the last movement, and was certainly much better when I finished the whole work. All the same, it reminds me of dark days. Though Schumann did indeed write the symphony in a month, the orchestration took much longer. He began to score the first movement in February 1846 and didn't finish it until early May. The work was completed the following October 19th, just three weeks before Felix Mendelssohn conducted the first performance. All of Schumann's symphonies search for new light to shed on a familiar form. They are marked by innovation and experiment, and sometimes by a rather deliberate attempt to avoid comparison with the towering achievements of Beethoven. The D minor piece, eventually published as his Symphony No. 4, is so daring and unconventional that Schumann thought of calling it a symphonic fantasy, sidestepping the issue altogether. All four published symphonies aim for unity by linking the movements through titles or thematic cross-reference. The C major symphony begins with a moody, slow introduction, the most obvious reminder of the composer's dark days. More important, it provides the main theme and several subsidiary ideas for the ensuing Allegro Manantropo, as well as the brass fanfare that returns to crown the first three movements and to hover near the end of the symphony. Although the first movement itself is high energy and emotion, Schumann chooses to follow it not with the accustomed calm of a slow movement, but with a virtuosic scherzo. And he thwarts expectations by giving us two independent trios, the first genial in a rustic way, and the second with its theme presented both upright and upside down, a reminder that it was Bach's music that led Schumann back to his desk. Like Beethoven in his Ninth Symphony, Schumann has kept us waiting for the slow movement, and he does not disappoint. This is music of great beauty, written in C minor, the other three movements are in C major, and revitalized midway through by the beginnings of a fugue, another tip of the hat to Bach. Despite Schumann's claims of improved health, the finale has often troubled analysts. Even Donald Tovey, normally rational, though often outspoken, found it incoherent. It is mainly a question of proportion. It begins with great authority and confidence and includes as its second theme a brilliant transformation of the principal melody of the Andante. The development and recapitulation merge, ending in C minor. Then follows a coda so long, half the movement's length, and remarkable that it nearly overshadows all that came before. It is based on a theme that is completely new to the symphony, though Schumann had used it before in his piano fantasy, pointedly borrowing it from Beethoven's Antifernegeliebte to the distant beloved, where it accompanies the words, Take then these songs of mine. By 1845, Schumann had married his own beloved, offering her some 121 songs in the year of their marriage alone. And so the reference is both loving and triumphant, a reminder that it was Clara who encouraged Robert to try writing for orchestra, wisely promising that his imagination cannot find sufficient scope on the piano. Program notes by Philip Husher on Schumann's Symphony No. 2. 
My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.